You took a course in archery this weekend? Huh, I did too. That's amazing. Except, no. <laughs> but if I had, it would have been amazing. Anyone else take a course in archery this weekend? <laughs> did you learn anything? Uh, well, yeah, a lot, actually, but mainly about archery. <laughs> Imagine. Was it like about archery, like the history of archery, or how to shoot? How to shoot? Oh, it's it's yeah. really amazing. It's hard. It is. I took a class like a couple months ago. In archery? Yes. Wow. Huh. Archery is, one of the strange things about archery is it's like golf, which is you can get the yips, and they just don't know what to do about it, um, which is that... Um, it happens in the Olympics a lot. Really good archers get to the Olympics, and then suddenly they freak out, and they just can't get anywhere near the target. And um, the more they think about it, the worse it gets. And um, they, you know, archery teams have psychologists who try to help them with it, but nothing really seems to work. Um, so it's it's a strange and weird thing. Um, the beginner's level of thinking really helps in immediate improvements. Like, say, if you just think about uh, what you did at that time and slightly modified. And I'm, I'm sure as you get better, as it comes to nature. Yeah. Now, the yips is just when you can't not think about it because you, if you try not to think about it, you're thinking about not thinking about it. Um, yeah. My track coach in high school, <clears throat> he went to the Olympics for a long jump. Uh -huh. But every single time he scratched, so he couldn't yeah. do the line. Yeah. Was, uh, he couldn't undo it. He couldn't undo it, yeah. And there was a shortstop for the Orioles when I was a kid who lost his ability to throw to first base. It's, I had a phase where I couldn't throw the ball back to the pitcher, and as a catcher. Yeah. I couldn't for like a month. Wow. But that wasn't like in the midst of, of, of no, a play. It's, like, it's really bad if it's in the midst of a play. I mean, yeah. yeah. It's but good. then, like, you're stuck there, and everyone's watching you, and you're, like, underhanding it to Right. really awkward. Or you just ask the ump to take a look at the ball and have the ump throw it back then. Can you make sure this ball's okay? I don't want the batter to be cheated. Okay, good. All right. Um, Joseph, I saw you. Yes. Abigail. Um, Noah. Yes. Um, Nicole. Uh, Connie. Um, Emma, uh, Ian, I saw you, yes, uh, Jimmy, I saw, yes, um, Aria, I think I saw, yes, uh, Prue, where's Prue, just kidding, Darhan, um, you're a silhouette against the light, just so you know, um, which is a cool thing to be, <laughs> it's a really cool thing to be, um, Andrea, uh, Onur, um, Gabby. Oh, hi. There you are. Uh, Lin Fei, I saw. Yep. And Angela. No. Okay. All right. How's the reading going? Are we all cut up? We're ready for today's surprise quiz on Spencer and Chaucer and Don Quixote. The quotation from Don Quixote. Yeah. You remember the quotation from Don Quixote? It's at the bottom of the, like, mixed thing? I don't know. <laughs> it was in the reading um, from um, Frozen Desire, Chapter 3. <laughs> All right. Uh, you guys should really read that. Um, we're going to...
talk about uh, Frozen Desire and about The Merchant of Venice on Wednesday. Um, so did people start that chapter? Um, okay, you should. Um, it's, it's an amazing thing. It goes from uh, Columbus to Shakespeare. Um, are you ready? Can anyone describe what happens in the Cave of Mammon and Spencer? Prue, describe. What do you want me to describe? Plot summarize. What you're not allowed to do in a paper, you're allowed to do in a class, which is just do the plot summary. Some dude. Named? It starts with a G. Yes, good, like gold. <laughs> His name starts with a G, just like gold. His name is Guyon. Okay, finds some mammon dude. All right, who's mammon? Who's mammon? And <laughs> anyone know who mammon is? when he's not in Spencer. Guy on is Spencer's name, Jimmy. I think he's supposed to be like a demon that represents greed? Yes, in Milton's Paradise Lost, which comes after Spencer, Milton was very interested in um, the Cave of Mammon um, episode in Spencer's Fairy Queen. And in Milton's Paradise Lost, has anyone read any of Milton's Paradise Lost? Um, sorry? Read like a yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of things. Yeah, so in so so that was a trick question. It actually wasn't a trick question. I was hoist on my own petard. But if you, but I only had you read um, the little bits that were about the precious bane of wealth, um, which is in hell. That is that you can find um, um, all sorts of precious stones in hell, which seems first odd and then maybe not so odd, and that would be like um, the cave of Mammon where you have a hellish place which is full of wealth. Um, and I also had you read a section which was about um, um, spend what seems to be something like the opposite of scarcity um, in God's universe, in God's heaven. Um, but the basic thing that happens in Paradise Lost, in the first two books of Paradise Lost, um, which is why we know that there is... Um, precious stones in hell, is that the fallen angels who have just lost a battle against God and been thrown to hell, they were, they were angels in heaven, um, they rebelled against God, they lost that rebellion, and Paradise Lost begins with them finding themselves in hell having just fallen from heaven after they were thrown over the crystal battlements of heaven and they fall for nine days and nine nights till they um, are stunned into unconsciousness in hell. But now they regain consciousness. And they decide what to do now. And part of what's amazing about Paradise Lost is that the rebel angels are, um, show extraordinary courage in the midst of loss itself, to quote um, what Satan um, sees around him. He finds himself not lost in loss itself. And he and his followers try to think what to do now, um, how to continue their rebellion, which they see as being on the side of freedom. Um, and so they have a council. And they build a palace before they have the council. They build a palace. Name anyone of that palace? It's the palace of all the devils or of all the demons. So um, the name for that palace is Pandemonium, all the demons. And that's Milton's name. He invents that name. 
Um, so that's a word that you know from Milton, even if you didn't know you knew it from Milton. Um, and in this palace, pandemonium, which is built out of all the precious substances that, can, that are to be found in hell, um, and that's where that famous um, phrase, precious bane, is found. What does bane mean? If something is a bane, if something is the bane of your existence, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's actually poison. Um, so the bane of your existence is something that does you damage. Um, the bane of, uh, a bane in general is something that does damage, and the bane of your existence just damages everything. Um, so the precious bane would be um, what would be a really strong version of what lawyers today call an attractive nuisance. Um, a precious bane is everyone wants it, but it's terrible for you. Um, and that's, of course, what you can find in hell are all these precious substances. So in Pandemonium, the fallen angels have a council where they decide what to do. And among the people who gives his counsel is Mammon. Um, and Mammon, um, among um, a lot of other fallen angels, um, gives advice as to um, what next steps are after losing uh, this terrible um, battle to God. Um, any of you read John Steinbeck? You must have read of Mice and Men at some point. Um, so you may know that he has a book called Indubious Battle. Is this familiar to anyone, that title? Um, it's, a, it's a pretty good book about labor organizing and um, communism, and it looks like it's pro-communist at first, but it turns out to be anti-communist. Uh, that phrase, in dubious battle, also comes from Paradise Lost, that um, Satan has lost um, this war to God, as he puts it, in dubious battle upon the plains of heaven. Um, so the... Um, idea is that Mammon goes all the way back <coughs> to classical antiquity. Um, and Mammon is the god of wealth. And therefore, um, famous line, you cannot serve two masters, God and Mammon. Um, so if you serve God, then you can't be greedy. If you serve um, greed, um, then you can't serve God. Um, so in The Fairy Queen, of which you have read... Um, one canto out of um, 74, just over 74, um, if you read um, Book 2, Canto 7. Um, Mammon is an allegorical figure, and of course what he stands for is something like greed, um, something like um, um, a temptation to... Um, wealth. Now, one uh, or a temptation to um, putting money, putting wealth, putting riches above everything else. Guyon is the knight, so I'll just give you a very brief overview of the Fairy Queen, which is um, a fantastic work, extremely influential on Shakespeare, um, extremely influential on The Tempest, um, especially. Um, and extremely influential on Milton. What Milton said about Spencer is he precisely quotes that section of the Fairy Queen, which is the Guyon going into the cave of Mammon. And he says, our sage and serious poet Spencer, Spencer, was, Spencer died about nine years before Milton was born. Our sage and serious poet Spencer, whom I dare be thought 
to think, am I quoting this right on her, who might dare be known to think um, uh, um, a better teacher than Scotus or Aquinas. So the two great medieval um, Christian philosophers, Duns Scotus, do you know what we get from Duns Scotus? What he's famous for giving us, a word you now know? A dunce cap. Um, because um, he wore this, this large, large pointed cap, um, the sorting hat of the, um, of the 12th century. And um, later people thought that the medieval philosophers were ridiculous. So they said, you're, you're just like Dunce Scotus, you're a dunce. Um, Milton was one of the people saying that. So the dunce cap originally meant great medieval philosopher wore this cap. And then when people turned against this great, this great medieval philosopher, the cap became, as perhaps red hats someday will in the future, um, became a sign of deplorable stupidity rather than of um, revolutionary interestingness. Um, but Duns Scotus was really smart, unlike um, people who wear other caps of other colors. Um, at any rate, Milton was against him. Um, Thomas Aquinas, you all know, um, the greatest of the medieval Christian um, philosophers and uh, one of the fathers of the church. Um, Milton turned against him, too, and said that he thought Spencer, the poet, was um, a greater, what's the word? Teacher. Teacher than either Scotus or Aquinas. Um, and in particular, he thought that the story of the Cave of Mammon was what he is uh, referring to. And what he sees in that story is someone who is tempted but resists temptation um, and realizes that the temptation to wealth is a destructive one. And it not only destroys um, the person who's tempted, but it actually destroys societies. And this is one thing that you'll see when you read um, the Buchan for Wednesday, um, is that he begins by describing um, the, the first half of that chapter is about the New World and about um, Columbus and then um, Cortez and then, in general, the Spanish um, Empire and what happened to it when it conquered Mexico and Peru and um, Jamaica and um, um, all sorts of other New World places. It was a complete and utter disaster for Spain that it did that, um, which is fascinating. And Spencer almost certainly had that in mind when he wrote um, uh, of the Cave of Mammon in um, The Fairy Queen. Uh, the Cave of Mammon essentially is the New World. And what Guyon doesn't do is what the Spanish did, which is to seize upon all the wealth they possibly could in the most horrendous, sadistic, um, greedy, destructive, genocidal way. Um, but it didn't only hurt um, their victims, it hurt them as well. And, um, and it hurt the empire of Spain. It ended up destroying Spain as a major empire. Um, and that's what the first half of um, that chapter in Frozen Desire is about. And it's really fascinating. But as I say, Spencer certainly had it in mind. Um, it's now 
at least most Spencer critics think he had it had um, Spanish uh, greed in the New World in mind um, when he wrote Book Six and the Fairy Queen, uh, when he wrote Book Six, Canto Seven. Um, so the plot basically is that Guyon goes down there, and the Twitter version of the plot is. Um, he looks at all the wealth, but he doesn't uh, seize it. The basic idea of the Fairy Queen is that Spencer is writing an allegory. Can anyone define allegory? Yeah? Andrew? Like a metaphor, but longer. <laughs> like a metaphor, but longer. Um, kind of, or I like the kind of like. It's kind of like a metaphor. Um, what it generally tends to be is a long story in which things stand for other things. And they stand pretty consistently for other things. Um, you sometimes get that in parables. You sometimes get it in fables. So that if you have um, <coughs> the fox and the crow, for example, um, the fox stands for, anyone know the fable of the fox and the crow? Crows, you know crows can't sing for shit. Um, they're really bad. They're really smart, but they can't sing. Um, they, they caw. And so there's a crow on a branch. This is an Aesop's fable. I think it's Aesop. I'm pretty sure it's Aesop. Um, could be La Fontaine, but some of his were from Aesop. Uh, crow's on a branch with a piece of cheese in its mouth, and a fox really wants that cheese. And so the fox on the ground can't reach it. The crow's way out of reach. Is this ringing a bell for anyone? And so the fox starts telling the crow how much he, the fox, has longed to hear the crow sing. And the crow looks down at the fox, and this is not a smart crow, which is unusual. Um, you know they're the smartest birds, right? Everyone knows that about crows? They're ridiculously smart. Um, it, it's like they've taught them calculus. They're that smart. Um, not really, but they are ridiculously smart. They can count very high, and they keep track of everything around them, and they're never fooled by the same trick twice, and they use um, tools. They use sticks and other tools when they need to. Um, so this crow is not that kind of crow. It's a dumb crow. And so it's up in the tree, and it's got a piece of cheese in its mouth, and the fox starts saying, oh, crow, I have so often longed to hear you sing. And the crow says, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I've never really sung. And the fox said, oh, no, everyone says that when you um, call, it's the most mellifluous sound, and there's nothing that I would rather hear. So finally, um, the crow is taken in by the fox's um, um, praise, and starts singing, and the cheese falls out of its mouth, and the fox grabs the cheese and goes trotting away. Um, and the moral is? Fables have morals. What's the moral of that? Anyone? If you're a crow and you're eating cheese, don't listen to foxes. You think that's the moral? Or, yeah, Ian. People will use flattery to get things out of you, so don't always buy into it. Yes, distrust a flatterer. Um, especially if you know it's flattery, um, then um, what you should realize is, is that they want something from you if they're flattering you and you know it's flattery. So the crow stands for someone who is, um, to anyone who is willing to believe a flatterer, and the fox stands for flattery. And that would be a quick little allegory. Um, and Nevertheless, there's a kind of sense that that makes because foxes are clever and um, crows are 
um, always eating or something like that. And um, so uh, foxes always represent something clever in fables. You rarely have a fable with a stupid fox. Occasionally a fox is defeated. Um, I know you read some Chaucer um, before. Um, do you know the nun's priest tale? It's the one about Chanticleer, the rooster. Okay, so here a fox fools, uh, fools a rooster um, and is going to um, um, go off and eat the rooster, but then the rooster manages to fool the fox back at the very end, which is a good thing because we're on the rooster's side. His name is Chanticleer. Um, so um, the, what an allegory is is a long story in which things represent other things very often arbitrarily, so that um, there's a famous Edward Gorey cartoon, for example. I, I want to get the caption right. Um, some of you will know this. Um, maybe I'll, I can uh, unearth. Thank you. See, he's, he's a demonstration of doing things not for money. Um, because he doesn't get paid for this, he's just auditing the class, and yet. Um, Trying to get the cheese from his mouth. Sorry? Trying to get the cheese from his mouth. Um, <laughs> nice. Uh, I think so. <laughs> um, Okay, so uh, Google Innocence on the Bicycle of Propriety. Anyone remember this? Do you guys know who Edward Gorey is? Yes, you do. You know him from when you were, when you were little kids. There was the alphabets, the Amphigory alphabets. Um, you'll recognize his style um, when you see him. Um, I'm trying to think what else you would have seen by him. He, he's, uh, he does a lot of... Uh, <coughs> wonderfully creepy children's books. Um, it's kind of long. Is it a phrase or is it just a bunch of it's a, gibberish? It's nicknames and stuff. Okay. When they have you like sign up for it, they tell you to use a phrase. Yeah, yeah I know. I did and now I regret it. Do you? Why? You don't like the phrase? It's just really long. Yeah, but it's easy hard to, to type on the phone. Yeah, that is the problem when they're hard to type on the phone. If you don't do it long, they make you do it every year. Yeah, I know. This way it's every two years. So, Innocence on the Bicycle of Propriety. Okay, thank you. I'm not going to. Innocence on the Piano. There, you got it. You had it. B.I. B.I. See it? Just go down, go down, go down one. Um, whatever one has the most, uh, yeah. So, does that style look at all familiar to you? That's that's how um, from from Gory's alphabets and Amphigory. No, okay. Anyhow, innocence on the bicycle of propriety, carrying the urn of reputation safely over the abyss of indiscretion. So that's an allegory. Um, because there is no real reason that you should think of propriety as a bicycle. Like, 
If you saw just that picture, could you possibly guess what it was about? Just looking at the picture. So it's just a woman carrying an urn um, on a tightrope um, going from one side of um, a canyon to another. Um, I what? think it's really appropriate. You couldn't have guessed, because by, it's a balancing act for priority. Yeah. So, it's a, so it's not altogether arbitrary. Yeah, no, so it, on the one hand, it is altogether arbitrary because there's no reason that propriety should be a bicycle. There's no reason that reputation should be an urn. There's no reason that indiscretion should be an abyss. Um, possibly there's a reason, um, because we're used to it, that innocence should be a woman. Um, but other than that, it all looks arbitrary. And then what an allegory does is it um, does what Oner just said, which is to take the arbitrary and, um, and fit it into a story that makes sense. Um, now, you could do it quite differently. You could have um, innocence in the race car of, um, of desire flooring um, the pedal of, um, of um, indifference to the floor of limitation um, headed for the um, finish line of escape or something like that. Um, but whatever you do, however you pick your allegorical um, connections, you can then tell a narrative, tell a story in which um, characters, in which things that stand for allegorical thing, for allegorical abstractions, um, uh, do what they should be doing um, in, you tell a story in which they should, they do what they should be doing given what it is that they represent. <coughs> so if um, avarice, if that were avarice on the bicycle, what kind of bicycle would it be? So it would be avarice or greed on the bicycle of what? Why would avarice be riding a bicycle? Just make some sense of that. Or what would avarice be carrying? So avarice, let's, let's say on the bicycle of blank, carrying the urn of what? Jewels. Of jewels of wealth, of money, of ill-gotten spoil, let's say. So avarice on the bicycle of something carrying the urn of spoil safely over the abyss of what? Bankruptcy. A bankruptcy. So then what would you call the bicycle? Enterprise. Of enterprise or of capitalism. So it could be avarice on the bicycle of capitalism carrying the urn of rent um, over the abyss of bankruptcy, safely over the abyss of bankruptcy. And so there's no way, if you looked at that picture, to know which of the two it was. You could give it different captions. In fact, what you'll find in uh, 16th and 17th century allegorical pictures like this is often they get different captions in different printings and the captions have nothing to do with each other. So you can caption this any way you want and then make sense of it once you caption it. With a metaphor, you can't really do that. You can't say, oh yes, a dove 
what a wonderful metaphor for a bicycle. Um, doves just are not metaphors for bicycles. Um, but with allegory, there's something arbitrary about the relationship of what you're looking at or what you're reading about to the thing that it stands for. So what Spencer does, thank you, is he writes this long allegorical book, The Fairy Queen. It's about a thousand pages long, depending on which edition you look at. Um, it's, he died after completing only a quarter of it. So it would have been 4,000 pages long if he'd completed it. It's totally great. Um, and um, the way The Fairy Queen works is that he was going to write 24 books, in fact, only six books. Um, he only finished six of them. Um, each book has a knight who is the knight of that book, a K-N-I-G-H-T knight, who is the knight of that book. Um, and each knight represents an Aristotelian virtue. So Aristotle wrote about what the virtues were, and he said there were public virtues and private virtues. And um, the really virtuous person combines all of them. So what are those virtues? Well, Spencer managed to figure out a way. Aristotle didn't count them up, but Spencer managed to figure out a way to come up with 12 private virtues and 12 public virtues. And so the first 12 books of the Fairy Queen were going to be about the private virtues. And the first virtue that Spencer uses, it's not from Aristotle at all except through Thomas Aquinas, is the virtue of holiness. That is, that you should always be devoted to God. Whatever you do should be in the service of God. And the first knight of the Fairy Queen is the knight called the Red Cross Knight because he has a red cross on his shield. Um, after he kills a dragon in the climax of book one of the Fairy Queen, um, he succeeded in his quest. So that dragon is the dragon. If the, if the Knight of Holiness is defeating a dragon, what would the dragon be the dragon of? Sin. sin. Yes, the dragon from the book of Revelation. Um, the dragon of sin, of um, the opposite of holiness. He, um, so he succeeds in killing this dragon, and then he runs into another knight, Guyon, at the beginning of book two. And Guyon is the knight of temperance. And so what does temperance mean? Restraint. Restraint. Um, not too much of this, not too much of that. Um, don't be a glutton, but don't be anorectic. Um, don't be... Um, a spendthrift, but also don't be a opposite of spendthrift? Miser. Yeah. So the idea of temperance is that you have to ride your bicycle over the abyss of extreme, carrying the urn of even-handedness. Um, and that's why the bicycle has two wheels, because one wheel is um, avoiding one extreme, and the other wheel is avoiding the other extreme, right? Probably not, but still, you can, that's how you tell an allegory. Um, so Guyon is the knight of temperance. And what that means is he is tempted throughout book two of the Fairy Queen. He is tempted with all sorts of things that he would have either too little of or too much of. 
And in book two, Canto seven, which is essentially the middle of book two, he's tempted with um, wealth, he's tempted with honor, he's tempted with all the excesses that mammon offers. And so it's a psychological story or a moral a story in moral psychology, which is to um, avoid extremes. The really interesting thing is that, that at the beginning of book three, when Guyon uh, succeeds in his task, if he succeeds, it's not quite clear, because he kind of loses it at the end of book two and behaves very intemperately, and he destroys a place called the Bower of Bliss. Um, then at the beginning of book three, he meets another knight, and this is the knight of chastity. And he doesn't know who this knight is, and the knight of chastity doesn't know who he is. They're both good guys. All the knights of all the books of Fairy Queen are, have been sent by the Fairy Queen herself out on their um, tasks and out on their quests um, but he meets this other knight, the knight of chastity. They don't know each other. They don't recognize each other. And they immediately clash. And the knight of chastity and the knight of temperance go charging into each other. And the knight, uh, who do you think wins the clash? One wins and the other loses. If you were writing allegory, chastity versus temperance, who wins? You can watch it on HBO or stream it live. Chastity versus temperance. Who wins? Chastity. Why? Yes, chastity wins. Good. Why? Um, well, I don't know. Chastity is like kind of an extreme, so I'd see it as more like potent than temperance. Yeah, because on the one hand, you could say something like, don't be miserly, but don't, um, don't let your money burn a hole through your pocket. Be careful about spending money, but spend it. If you're miserly, what, are you, what kind of value are you um, treating as too important? Money, exchange value. It's exactly what Aristotle is saying, which is that you're putting money, not, you're not seeing money as something that's useful in um, getting things that you can consume, you're being like King Midas. The story of Midas is the story of someone who valued money or gold over everything else. And in valuing gold over everything else, he discovered that gold had no value at all um, if it was the only value. Um, that if he tried to drink the water turned to gold, if he tried to eat the food turned to gold, um, if he touched something, it all turned to gold and it had no value. So on the one hand, don't be like Midas. Um, on the other hand, don't simply act as though nothing is of any value at all and you can just give it, um, you can spend it on anything you want. Um, be careful about husbanding um, the means of getting what you need for the management of the household. Again, what's the Greek word for household management? Yes. Yeah, economy. Um, oiko, oikonomos, or economy, we would say in English. Um, so that seems like a good idea. Being temperate seems like a good idea. Until you get into a situation where it's hard to see what temperance would be. 
Um, so chastity is binary. You're either a virgin or you aren't. And so if you meet the knight of chastity, the knight of chastity isn't going to say... I had a friend, um, actually a roommate, um, in grad school who um, was... Um, uh, kind of knew about practicing safe sex, but was also, like uh, many people of the time, kind of resentful of the idea. Um, and I said to him at one point, he came back from a date with a guy, um, and I said, did you practice safe sex? And his answer was, arguably. Um, so arguably is not that great. It's like, who are you going to argue with? Um, and uh, he's fine. He's my best friend. He's, a lot of you have heard him on the phone um, because he calls from time to time during class. Um, he teaches at Princeton. Um, but it was a hilarious answer, arguably. So can you be, like, arguably chaste? Well, arguably, I was kind of chaste. What would it mean to be kind of chaste? So you can be temperate about most things, temperate about eating, temperate about sleeping, temperate about um, working, not working too hard, but making sure to do some work, um, temperate about drinking, obviously. Um, but temperate about chastity seems to be a contradiction in terms. And so the night of chastity defeats the night of temperance. And part of what Spencer is interested in there is the idea that um, maybe the virtues don't actually harmonize with each other. Maybe one virtue prevents you from having a different virtue. Maybe, for example, the virtue of being a good spouse prevents you from having the virtue of being um, a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, you can't do both. There are ways that the church claims you can, but at first blush it looks like you can't do both. Um, maybe the virtue of um, being a good cook doesn't co uh, can't coincide with the virtue of, um, or maybe, you know, maybe the virtue of providing um, a decent life for yourself can't coincide with the virtue of being as charitable as possible. Um, there are things that, that may not fit together. The puzzle of virtue may not be one where all the pieces fit with all the other pieces. And that's one of the things that Spencer is exploring. Um, so that's a general overview of The Fairy Queen. It's an amazing book. Um, and the Cave of Mammon is one of the most boring parts of it, but it's the most relevant part for this class. Um, and as I say, also relevant historically. Um, okay, let's turn to, I just wanted to um, point out one other thing in Aristotle, and then um, we'll have a few minutes at least to turn to uh, Kawabata. Um, so the... Um, Last thing that Aristotle talks about in the section, in the passage, um, that we've been looking at is, um, it's the last paragraph of the Aristotle handout before the two great um, definitions from Ambrose Bierce. Um, so just since we were talking about Satan and the devil, um, Ambrose Bierce did this great book called The Devil's Dictionary, which you can find online online. Um, 
And do people know who Ambrose Pierce was? Um, you probably know. Who was he, Jimmy? He was a, like, satirist. Yeah. He disappeared in Mexico. He went to um, find Pancho Villa. Um, he was a he was a journalist for the San Francisco Chronicle at the turn from like 1875 to 1910, um, and he was a short story writer. Some of you will know his most famous story. Do you know what it is? An occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. An occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Is this familiar to anyone? Um, describe it. A guy's getting hanged. Yeah, this guy's getting hanged. He's a deserter. Yeah, so we get his point of view, and the story is that um, he's being hanged from a bridge. They push him off the bridge, um, and uh, the rope breaks, and he goes down the water, and he's escaping from the people who would hang him, and it's all exciting, and he's trying to get home and trying to get away from them, um, but the wound from, from the rope burns is, is uh, making him feel worse and worse, and then finally it's, um, he feels himself going under. And then we cut to those who are hanging him, and it turns out his body is just hanging from the bridge. Um, if you saw the movie Jacob's Ladder, it, um, it basically steals the idea from an, occur an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Is this familiar to anyone, this story? Um, it was a story they used to teach all the time. And like, you, taught, you read in high school? Yeah. What grade? Do you remember? Like yeah. Do you, where'd you read it? Did you read it in high school? Oh, is there really? I think so, yeah. Oh, wow. No, it was like an old show like that, yeah. And okay. then I looked it up and, yeah. Yeah, so anyhow, that's his most famous story. But he did this wonderful book called The Devil's Dictionary, which is very, very cynical definitions of things. Um, did I quote for you his definition of dice? Um, dice, noun, plural. Small polka-dotted cubes of ivory constructed like a lawyer, to lie on any side, but commonly the wrong one. So dice are constructed like a lawyer to lie on any side. Thank God those days are over, right? Um, um, or one of my favorites is the letter I, which is I is the first letter of the alphabet, the first word of our language, and the first thought of the mind. Um, so it's all about how selfish people are, because, of course, I is not the first letter of the alphabet, but it is for Amb Ambrose Beers. Then he says, the plural of I is said to be we, though how there can be more than one myself is a thought which is difficult but fine. Um, so he loves the idea that there can be more than one of him. He would love that. Um, so the whole book is great. If anyone wants it, I can send you a PDF of it. Um, so his definition of um, money is a really good one. A blessing that is of no advantage to us, excepting when we part with it. Um, and this is something he wrote about a lot, actually, that um, a person with $100 in his pocket and a person with no money in his pocket are in exactly the same circumstances <laughs> Um, unless the person with the $100 does something with it. But to have money in your pocket or not to have money in your pocket makes no difference. It's only if you do something with the money 
that it makes a difference. You can starve if there's no food. You can starve whether you have money or not. You will starve whether you have money or not. So um, the strangeness of money, and this is the Aristotelian strangeness, is that if you use it as an end in itself, it does you no good because it can't be consumed. A blessing that is of no advantage to us, excepting when we part with it. An evidence of culture and a passport to polite society. What does that mean? How is money an evidence of culture? Is it? We have a very rich and cultured president right now, right? <laughs> Why is money an evidence of culture? Yeah. A lot of things that like people would say give you culture, like art or theater or whatever, you need money to Okay, so to buy cultured things, you need money if you want to buy art or you want to go to the theater or go to the opera. All of this um, costs money. Um, it's all, yeah. Also, maybe in order to earn money, like at a like earn enough money to kind of access those kinds of culture, you also need to be educated enough to have a job where you could like earn a significant Okay, um, what if this what if this term is cynical? If someone has a lot of money and you are an artist or an opera director or a restaurant manager for a, for a Tony restaurant and someone comes in with a whole lot of money, how are you going to treat them? Sorry? You're going to treat them as though they're really well-educated and cultured. Um, that is, the more money someone has, the more those whose business it is to sell culture will go up to them as though they're cultured because they have money. And the idea would be to um, flatter them into thinking that if they buy this painting that they think looks stupid because they have no idea why they should buy a painting that their kid could do. But if everyone is saying, oh, no, 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 that's really great art, then they will try to prove that they're cultured by using their money to buy this great art. So he means that sarcastically. When he says an evidence of culture, what he means is that's what people um, who have money are believe themselves to be cultured, um, and also um, people treat them as though they're cultured. And that's why it's a passport to polite society. Um, then supportable property basically means um, property that you can take around with you but also that you're very happy to tolerate. It doesn't require um, maintenance the way real, pro real estate does. Um, it's just you can take it with you. Then a little bit later, under R, riches, now. And then he quotes um, three people. Riches, noun. A gift from heaven signifying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, said John D. Rockefeller. Who's John D. Rockefeller? <laughs> Anyone? Famous rich dude. <laughs> a, a famous rich dude, yes. Was steel or was he oil? Oil. Yes, standard oil. Standard oil, yep. He was actually the richest person still in the history of the world. Um, that is, he possessed more, a higher percentage, he owned a higher percentage of what the gross national product was of the United States in around 1907. Um, than anyone since. So he um, essentially owned more of all the wealth in the US um, than um, Bezos and Gates and um, 
um, all the other billionaires put together. Um, he had something like, I think I read somewhere like 40% of the wealth in the U.S. Um, so naturally, this is his definition. Um, J.P. Morgan, very famously in the Depression of 1907, uh, everything was crashing and burning. And J.P. Morgan, um, who is, you know, we would call uh, rich, um, brought a lot of other rich people together, but not Rockefeller, who couldn't care less, uh, brought a lot of rich people together, and he basically saved the banks and saved the banking system. And afterwards, Rockefeller said to him, it's amazing that you did that, and you're not even a wealthy man. Um, so Rockefeller was rich enough to, to think that J.P. Morgan was, you know, kind of poor. Um, well, okay. Secretary of Congress thinks that everybody should get loans. That's right, of course, during the government shutdown. Or as, they, as um, um, Saturday Night Live did it, as Kate McKinnon, did anyone see Kate McKinnon on Saturday? She did a great Secretary of Commerce, so she said, well, you know, during the shutdown, you could send your horses to public school. <laughs> um, so, um, okay, uh, J.P. Morgan, not a wealthy man, calls riches the reward of toil and virtue. Who's Eugene Debs? Anyone? Yeah, Ian? Uh, he was a communist who ran for president from prison. Yes. Um, he was in prison for being communist. He ran for president uh, from prison. He was a great spellbinding orator and regarded as very dangerous like um, by all the rich. And his definition is the savings of many in the hands of one. Uh, so Beers just comments, to these excellent definitions, the inspired lexicographer feels that he can add nothing of value. So there's that little joke on value again. Okay, we'll stop here, um, read and bring in um, uh, the uh, James Buchan, and we have a little bit more Aristotle to look at, but it's relevant to the Buchan. So see you Wednesday. Um, I'll send them to you. I don't have any with me, but I'll send them to you. Uh,